It is good, like I said, to be in the house of the Lord today. I'm always eager to see what God can do uh, in the midst of, of what we might see as common worship services. A lot of times uncommon things happen and God shows up in miraculous ways. And so I pray that that is what will happen this morning, is that God will show up and that uh, I believe He already has in many, many ways. But if you have not felt His presence yet, I pray that before you leave these doors that you will. So, this, this morning, uh, I'm charged with being able to, to be in front of you to extol the Word of God. It's always one of those things that, that I sit there and have fear and trepidation any time that I step into a pulpit with. Um, because really, the, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, I do believe in the preparation time, in the, in the time of uh, coming up before you today, in the times of study, in the times of, of prayer, in the times of worship, um, getting ready for this service, um, that God has met me in many ways. And I, I sit there and say, okay, God, I know that you've met me. I just hope that I get out of your way so that you can meet others uh, in the midst of it. And so that's what I, I pray for uh, every time that I get up here, is that God shines through the cracks in this broken pot called Matt Lasky and uh, that he shows something to you this morning. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer again. God, I just say thank you so much for who you are. I say thank you for what you're doing in this place called Timberlake, in this place called Lynchburg, in this place called Virginia, in this place called the United States, in this place called your earth. God, I ask that we would be able to understand more of who you are, uh, get a greater grip on your love for us, and that we would be sent out in your grace to others to share that love. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. A pastor went out one Saturday to visit some of his church members. At one house, it was obvious that someone was home. But no one came to the door, even though the preacher continued to knock several times. Finally, the preacher took out his card, wrote on the card, Revelation 3.20, right there on the back of it, and stuck it in the door. It said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Revelation 3.20 The next day, the same card turned up in the collection plate. Below the preacher's message was written the following edition. Genesis 3.10 I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There are many things to be afraid of in the world. There are many things that grip our hearts. Uh, hopefully you're not afraid when a pastor, especially from this church, comes knocking on your door. I always hope that it's a, a warm welcome. But there are things that, that grip our hearts in fear. The times we live in are filled with this fear. We are inundated on every angle, from news stories to, to other things that we hear that seem like there's an eager expectation for the world to just end in some real dismal way. The news is filled with stories of ever-increasing violence, robberies, kidnappings, abuse, terrorism, war upon war. We seem to have an endless stream of natural disasters, such as famines, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires. We also observe, due to increasing immorality, diseases that threaten mankind's very existence. Add to all this the continued spending habits of the nations in our world and their continued recklessness in pushing the obscene amounts of debt onto future generations, and it would bring the most saintly in this room probably to curse. 
It is no wonder that people live in a place of fear. So many of these days are afraid of losing their jobs, our homes, our life savings. People fear for the personal well-being, uh, the safety of their children, safety of their grandchildren, and the security even of our nation. In the midst of all this, people desperately find themselves searching for this elusive thing called security. See, we, we look for secure places, and we search, and we do things like buy guns or security alarms, uh, those extra precautions that we go to. Uh, we go out less in our communities. We retreat to our homes in an effort to minimize risk and to maximize this thing called safety. We seek to build walls and fences in an effort to be safe. We look to Eastern religions and their methods for inner peace and inner security for our souls. People now start to ask questions like, is everything going to get worse? Where is God in this? Is God in control? Does God care? And the granddaddy of them all, does God even exist? Well, God's grace is always good, and God in His grace has given us answers to these questions found in the words of the shepherd boy who became king of Israel. Let us look at an ancient poem that speaks words of grace, peace, and security for us today. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 2 in your Bible. Uh, if you happen to have left your Bible at a friend's house while you were discussing last week's sermon, know that we have strategically placed Bibles in the pew before you, or if you've sat in the rows in the back right underneath you, and you can follow along with me there. Again, we're going to look and to study a little bit of Psalm 2 today, starting in verse 1 and going until we run into Psalm 3. Psalm 2 does not have an autograph from its author. However, we do know that it was written by David due to Luke, a disciple of Jesus Christ who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and identified David in his work called Acts of the Apostles uh, 425. So that's a little side note, a little extra for you. But if you would, please follow along while I read this poem of David. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son and he may not, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. David asks a certain question as he writes the first few lines to the poem we have just read. He asks, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? David cannot imagine the people of this world being against God. There is no reason for them to be angry with God, nor do they have a foothold to stand on when it comes to opposing God. See, for many of us in this age, we have the tendency to see something go wrong, and we look to blame God for the tragedy 
or for the things that go wrong in our lives. We play the blame game just as my children do when something gets broken or someone gets broken in my house. I know it's my natural tendency even in myself to seek out the quick way to fix things rather than the right way to fix things. It is my tendency to resist God and to offer my grand counsel back to God rather than doing what God wants for me, and that is to surrender my own will to his. That is why David proclaims in his poem that it is a vain thing to devise anything for our lives outside of the will that God has for us. And I hope each one of us here today understands just how vain and foolish of a thing it is to plot and to scheme against God. We do, however, live in a world that proclaims that there are way more uh, good things to do other than listen to the principles that God has placed before us in His Word. People look at God who are far from God and do not know God as a taskmaster, a rule giver, someone who would put them into chains rather than seeing God for who He truly is as a chain breaker, a freedom maker, the greatest abolitionist of all time. We must understand that we live in an age that carries the predominant thought that when we surrender our lives to God through Jesus Christ, we are then placed into some type of bondage. How many times have you found that when you speak about Jesus or heaven or sin or any type of Christian thing that there has been that one person in the room, at least one, says, oh well, I don't mind. Hell's going to be a party. I can't wait to get there. They're going to have the A-list celebrities, the greatest music. People who know how to have fun will be there. Well, this is... This is so far from the truth. See, for those who are in Christ know that there is only true freedom in Him. For it is written, those who have been set free by the Son are free indeed. We no longer are chained to the sin and the weight of death found in that sin. Much like this, we see in the passage that those in the world hear that their lives will have to change when God shows up, and they throw up their hands and they say, we don't want anything to do with that type of God. See, people, God loves all of us. He wants all of us in the family. He wants all of us to come to know Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever, and that whoever is anyone. But see, God loves us enough to also not leave us in our down, downtrodden state, in our sin-sickened heart. He loves us enough to call us into change, to sanctify us, to call us into a journey of becoming holy like He is holy. So God calls everyone, but He doesn't leave us just there. He transforms us into something beautiful. So in this, people people look and the world looks and they, they read verses that speak of sexual purity or monogamy and they say that that is some type of bondage. They read verses that require self-sacrifice and humility and they say that is chains, that is bondage. So how does God respond to nations, to the the peoples, when they see God as a killjoy and a taskmaster, one who enslaves? Well, God laughs. God's laugh is not a mocking laugh. It's it's not one that, that puts people in their place, but it is confident laughter. See, God is not in heaven worrying about man's next move or his great next sin. See, God sits on his throne and is in full control over all things. God is busy at work and is looking to bring great good to all those who are called according to His purpose. In verses 4-6, through we see that God speaks to the nations 
and the leaders of those nations many times. God declares over and over and over again that God has deep displeasure in how they are being. God warns them over and over again to repent, to pick up humility, to turn from their sin, and to walk in the ways of God. God has every right to just destroy those people. But however, God does not do that. See, God is so patient. God is so kind. God is willing to speak over and over again warnings before bringing the righteousness and justice we deserve. God shares with them in these verses that God has established a perfect king for them to follow. This should bring such freedom to us as humanity that God in his deep pleasure and his deep knowledge has given us an ability to put responsibility of ruling and reigning on one, the great king. We simply need to recognize that God has given us a king and follow that king. When we give up our rights, see, we receive far more than what we lay down. Moving into verses 7 through 9, we see in these verses that the Lord's anointed is the one who is speaking. These, this word anointed is in the Hebrew, and it means what we call Messiah. We know the Messiah is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. The words used here in Psalm indicate this understanding of begotten. David Guzik explains it this way. He says, begotten describes a relationship between two beings of the same essential nature and being, but we're, crea- but we're created things of a different essential being and nature than ourselves. A man creates a statue, but begets a child. Jesus was not created, but was begotten. For a short time, authority has been given to Satan to rule over this world. We see this in scriptures such as Job and the temptation of Christ in the New Testament. If Satan didn't have some type of authority, he would never have been able to have the ability even to tempt Jesus. So as we read that the nations will be at Christ's inheritance, we should be overjoyed and in worship at all times due to that simple fact. The good news is that at the end, Jesus is king forever. In the end, Jesus will have full authority and all the turmoil, all the injustice, all those woes, all the tears, all the pain, all the craziness of this world will be brought back correctly under his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We will be with him forever in glory. And what a great day that will be. See, there's no good reason to be defiant to the Lord. In the end, Jesus is king. It is foolish of anyone to deny this, And for those who continue in their defiance will one day be met with a rod of iron and the wrath of God rather than His mercy and grace. The sin of defiance carries with it an eternal punishment not because of what it is, but because of who it is against. See, sins against an eternal God carry with them an eternal punishment. This is why we see the psalmist plead in verses 10 through 12 to serve the Lord and to not be defiant against Him. God in His mercy shows us in Psalm 2 just how merciful God is. We know as Wesleyans that God's prevenient grace goes out to all humanity. We know that God's desire for all men and all women from every nation to come to know him. We know that God has made a way for all to do that through the gift of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that members of this church were sent out last week on a mission trip to Pennsylvania. I recommend that you ask those who went on that trip to tell some stories to you about it. I will share one of, you, one of those stories with you right now that I find relevant to our scripture this morning. I believe we have some slides. Yep, there's my buddy Tannen and Christina Herman. Uh, they have a call in their life to bring back the garden 
to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. In the beginning, God created a beautiful place called Eden, which was the most perfect green space ever created. Eden would make the island of Maui look like a landfill. Tannen shared with our team the vision God has given them to bring dignity back to the people of Harrisburg through simple acts of kindness, like cleaning up illegal dump sites, spreading mulch, building fences, cutting lawns, washing feet, feeding bellies, creating community again. This restoration effort, they hope, will turn into revival. Tennant shared an understanding with us that when people do not have gardens, or as he put it, green spaces to retreat to, they seem to have a tendency to be more depressed and lethargic than those people who have gardens and green spaces to go to. This is why you see in New York City and many other large metropolises, they've set apart green spaces, large green spaces like Central Park. So for the people of Harrisburg in 1785, they embarked to create the most beautiful of cities. After a huge fire, the city was rebuilt, and in 1902, Vance McCormick, an elected mayor of Harrisburg, as part of the growing city beautiful movement, and set forth immediately to improve the city, to cause green spaces. He expanded the city park system, which eventually included 1,100 1, acres, built steps along the Susquehanna River, which still exists today, paved 70 miles of roads, and improved the city water system. And during this time, the population of the city increased from 51,000 to 73,000. However, the city beautiful gave way to what is considered progress. And as many government officials gained, <coughs> excuse me, gained wealth, the city suffered and went into despair. So how does all this tie back into our scripture this morning? Well, I'll tell you that I had first row seats to see what it looks like when the prayers and financial giving of a church are miraculously turned into the hands and feet of Jesus himself. I was able to, along with, with those who came with me on the trip, to see the inheritance of Jesus Christ right before me. See, we met people like Francisco, Juan, Tete, Cody, Rihanna, and her twin sister, Tiana. We were able to see those who rage against God and those who humble themselves before God. Tannen shared with us that many make the comments of why clean up someone else's trash? Shouldn't they do that themselves? I am so glad to be a part of a church that does not share in that way of thinking. What would it look like if God had done that for us? What would it look like if he had said that over our lives? See, God has the right to say clean up your own mess. Yet God does not say that to anyone no, God sends those who are called according to his purpose to share his great love and commitment to them. He sends people to stand on the top of trash heaps like Patrick McLaughlin. God sends people like Bill Torrance to pull tons of someone else's garbage up the street so the kids have green spaces to play in. God sends the seniors and the youth of our church into the ghetto to show his love to those that have no hope. And I will tell you firsthand, I was able to see God use each individual in a unique way to express God's love and to gain Jesus a more precious inheritance. So, as many are filled with fear of the future, I want us to remember that as children of God, He has established His King over all things. That we have great assurance and a greatest of hope in Jesus Christ. This past week, I saw people at Timberlake and the church coming to the feet of Jesus and creating Eden through the cleaning up of other people's garbage. May we be a people that never retreat from offering Christ to the hardest of hearts. May we be a people that never retreat from creating gardens in the middle of landfills. May we not be filled with fears of the world, 
but use every effort to show those who have every reason to be fearful that there is a God in heaven who loves them. May God have the glory and Christ a large inheritance. Amen.